Okay, so we are launching a new series in September and October called We Do Real. And um, I've been asked to do the very first one. The very first talk in the whole We Do Real series is on discipleship. And I've decided to take that and make it a little bit bigger. And so I want to talk to you today about discipleship in the context of community. Okay, so discipleship in the context of community. And I've been thinking about that, obviously, ever since I got asked to do this talk. And um, in the summer, the whole church moved into Allen House for a few weeks. And there was this, and I actually only was able to make it to one week because I was away at Soul Survivor and on holiday, which is not the same thing. Um, but one of them was uh, the Bowers led one. And they talked from Philippians and the bit where Paul tells the church to shine like stars in a broken and corrupt generation. You know that verse? It's Philippians 2.15. And they got us all to be quite interactive, and they got us all to like sit down, get into groups, and they asked us three questions. And the second question that they've asked us has just been rolling around, and I can't seem to get away from it. And their question was, when Paul taught, tells us to shine like stars in a broken and corrupt generation, what opportunities do we have to shine? So where are there opportunities that we personally have to shine? And, um, and I was thinking about that in the context of not just me as an individual, but us as a church. The church in Guildford, what opportunities do we have to shine? And I just want to bring some facts to your attention, and these are quite hard-hitting facts um, that I did a bit of research this week. And... In America last year, a lot of them are American, it's easy to find stats about America for some reason, but in America last year, 50 million prescriptions for antidepressants were written out. In America uh, last year, a group called the AARP, the Association of American Retired Persons, said that one in three over 45-year-olds would consider themselves chronically lonely. And by lonely, they mean not alone. Lonely as in they are in desperate need of some form of intimate relationship. But then the very worst one that hit me was, in the developed world now, the number one cause of death in the 15 to 49 demographic is suicide, which now beats heart disease, obesity, cancer, car accidents. The number one. And... Um, you know, I don't want to like, reduce these things down to really simple answers because they're not. And we did an amazing job in this church last, last term looking through the complexities of some of these issues. But the truth is, I'm reminded of the words of a Nick Lowe song that says, there is nowhere left to run from what lack of love has done. But I disagree because we have the church. C.S. Lewis says that God is love and he expresses his love through the community of Christians. And Frodo Baggins said, <laughs> why had I forgotten it? A light when all other lights go out and now light alone can help us. And so what I want to try and do today, if I can, is to try and paint a picture of what would it look like for us as a community of people doing this journey of Christianity and life together. How could we shine like stars? In a, in a life situation where so many people are exhausted and lonely and without love. And so I'm going to dive in to community, and then I'm going to try and make it a little bit practical, if I can, by picking out some aspects of community. Don't worry, that's not mine. Um, some aspects of community 
that I think that I've seen and I've had the privilege of sitting under people who I think that cause community to thrive. Um, the best talk I ever heard on community was actually from a thing called the Jesus Culture Leadership Podcast. Did anybody listen to that? No? Great. So let's just pretend it was me. Um, so in the Jesus Coach Leadership Podcast, there's this guy called Banning, and he talks about community. And he tells this story about how two really close friends of his phoned him up and they said, Banning, our marriage isn't working. We're going to get a divorce. And Banning was talking through that whole situation with them. And he said that they said one thing that really stuck with Banning, and that was, Banning, we've done our very best, but we just can't make it work. And then Banning had this line that I love, and he said, Maybe your best was never meant to be good enough. Now let's unpack that for a second because what Banning is saying is that in the context of community, you don't have to settle for just your best. You get to settle for your best plus the best of every single person around you that you get to do life with. I saw this in the most beautiful way at um, Ben and Jess's wedding last, last weekend and it was incredible, so nice to get to celebrate like two people in our community deciding to do life together and deciding to get married. But there was this one really beautiful part where Ben thanked a whole load of people in his speech, but he thanked um, the Bennetts who they'd, he'd done marriage prep with. Are the Bennetts here? No. Okay, well, you can say well done to them when they come back. But basically, he stood up and he said something along the lines of, I just want to say a massive thank you to the Bennetts, because I don't know if I could have done this without them. And what is so stunning now is that Ben doesn't have to just offer Jess his best, and Jess doesn't just have to offer Ben her best. They get to offer each other the Bennetts best. I mean, that's community, and that's just everything thriving. But then there's a whole other aspect of it, and the whole other aspect of it is that in this Christian walk, Jesus calls us to things that we could never accomplish, us, accomplish by ourselves. He calls us to do things that are greater than ourselves. And then he positions us in a church. And he gives us the opportunity to go further than our best. And when I get to heaven, I hope that I've accomplished a great many things. And when I look Jesus in that face in that moment, I don't want to say, Jesus, I tried my best and it wasn't good enough. I want to say, Jesus, thank you so much that you put me into Emmaus Road. Thank you that you let me live with Matt Horswell and Dan Jones. Thank you that you let me have Hannah for a time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that I got to sit under the Bowers and the Slins and the Greggs. Lord Jesus, thank you for all these people that invested in my life and let me do better than my best. And so, Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will become wise. It's interesting that it doesn't say, He who walks with God will become wise. I mean, I know it does make that point in other parts of the Bible. But, <laughs> but it is this point that there are some things that I believe that God wants us to get from one another. There are some things that I think that I'm only going to get by spending time with people sat in front of me. And so that's the kind of the picture that I want to paint to you about community. Um, and now I'm just going to jump into three things that kind of, how do we do that well? How do we draw on the very best of each other? Practically, what does that look like? Because it's really easy to stand up here and be like, let's do community really, really well. But the truth is that community is hard. It's meant to be hard. 
nothing in life that's worth having comes easy and community is nitty and gritty and you work through it and you do things wrong and you saturate the whole thing with grace and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But the first thing that I want to talk to you about, so this is the first key, so there's going to be three keys which I feel are key to community thriving. And the first key is a really interesting one because um, for those of you who don't know, I got to spend an incredible nine months at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Um, I got to do their discipleship school. Uh, it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and for those of you who know Bethel, you'd probably think that, um, you know, like it stands for like healing and supernatural, like it's all about like those kind of things. But Chris Vallotton, who's like Bill Johnson's like the pastor of Bethel and then the guy who is like the associate pastor, who also runs the school that I did, got asked a question and he, he got asked, what do you think is the number one thing that the Western church needs to excel in this next season? So what is the number one thing the Western church needs to learn to excel in this next season and see God's kingdom advance? And you think that he, I mean, he's an extremely prophetic guy, so you'd probably think maybe prophecy, you'd think maybe a better understanding of the scripture, probably something about like an outbreak of the supernatural. His answer was encouragement. The Western church would excel if it learned how to be more encouraging to one another. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Why is encouragement such a key to the church excelling? In Proverbs, it also says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Um, if you follow Paul's story in the book of Acts, he has this moment where, obviously, like probably most of you know Paul's story, he persecuted the church, put them in prison, killed them. And then he has this incredible encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he's struck blind, he meets Jesus, Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? And then you follow his story and he basically goes and tries to find the original apostles and tries to meet with them and discuss his conversion. So this is a monumental defining time in Paul's journey. He's obviously racked with incredible guilt, I would think. He realizes that the whole thing that he's been pursuing is wrong. His whole zeal for the Christian faith has been wrong, and he's actually been killing and imprisoning God's people. And he goes to try and see the apostles, the people you'd think hopefully they'd have some grace, but they're all too frightened to meet with him. Except one man, Barnabas. Barnabas, who was originally called Joseph, got named Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. And he was the one that in this defining moment in Paul's life told the apostles to meet with him and basically became the springboard for Paul's ministry. There is a hero in heaven called Paul because there is a hero in heaven called Barnabas. And what would happen if Barnabas hadn't have been there? And then we make it applicable to our lives. How many times have you done something because you had encouragement? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. How many times have you not You've experienced life because someone spoke that into you. And obviously you can look at the other side of it and we can speak death over people, but let's focus on the positive. What if in this place you always turned up and you were surrounded by a whole load of people, 200 people who believed in you more than you believe in yourself? Every church on Sunday you turn up and you walk into this room and you think, there stands before me 200 people who believe in me, who are going to speak life into me, who are going to encourage me. I mean, that's community thriving, I think. There's, um, they gave us this challenge at Bethel. Become the most encouraging person you know. What if we all chose to pick up that challenge? 
become the most challenging person you know. When I was driving in to preach last time, actually, um, I'm from quite a big family. I have two parents and four brothers. And um, the morning that I woke up, and you're obviously like going through everything that you're about to preach about, I got a text from my dad, and it was like, son, I believe in you. You're going to do so well. Then I got a text from my mom saying, oh, Jesus is with you. And I was like, that's so good, too. Then I got a text from, Nathan, from Josh, actually, who's my older brother, and he was like, dude, you're going to nail it, something like that. And then Nathan, and then Isaac. And then I got another text from my mum, and I was like, oh, that's weird. And then it turns out my 12-year-old little brother had found her phone, and then he'd chosen to text me as well. I just thought, this is community, this is encouragement. And it did, like it fueled something in that moment that I believed in myself. So that's the first one. What would it look like if we all became the most encouraging people that we know? And let's not do that naive and sad thing where we say that one person in the church has the gift of Barnabas. You have the encouragement gift. It's not true. Do you know that the same word, so you know the Holy Spirit's called the comforter? That's the word in Greek, parakletos. The word encouragement is paraklesis. It's basically the same root word. So it's not wrong to say that the Holy Spirit's job is to encourage you. So if the Holy Spirit's working in you, then it's also right for you to have the gift of encouragement and give it to other people. Okay, point number two, key number two. Accountability. Um, accountability is a really interesting one because as soon as you say accountability, what springs to most people's minds, I think, is damage control. So it's like, I'm going to be part of this accountability group and it's going to be horrendous because I'm going to have to tell them everything that I do wrong. And I feel like I make a whole load of mistakes. But let me read you something. So this is another quote from C.S. Lewis. And there's no more from Friday Baggins, so don't worry. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, and in this, con in this context, pantheist, C.S. Lewis, he's talking about someone who doesn't really believe as God as a being, but believes that you find divinity in the universe. So that kind of the universe is divine and nature's divine, that idea. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk such damned nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colours and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists, and he insists very loudly, on our putting them right again. So what if accountability wasn't about damage control? What if accountability was about making sure that you position people in your life that make sure you fulfill the great potential that we've been called to in this great adventure called Christianity? What if you surrounded... So my question to you there is, where in Guildford do you think that something has gone wrong with the world and God is insisting, and insisting very loudly, that you put it right again? And what if you surrounded yourselves with people who, when you got together at the beginning of the year, it wasn't, I really hope this year I don't mess up in this way, this way. I'm not trying to say that that is an important part of accountability. It's an incredibly important part of accountability. 
But what if at the beginning of the year it was like, this year I want to see God move here. I want to see God move in the club scene. I want to see God move in the schools. I want to see God move in Bushy Hill or Belfields. And I'm going to make sure that I position people in my life who hold me to that high calling. I mean, last week it was incredible. Lily got up here and said it was time for the 20s and 30s to get out of their comfort zones. And they all came forward. And I hope that some people here in that moment, God planted a seed or a dream in your mind. But the devil will try and snatch that away. He will. He's terrified of you. He's terrified of what you carry. And so what you do is you then position people around you and you say, help me. Hold me accountable to this. But there's another aspect of accountability that I think is really important. And um, you know in the Bible it says, confess your sins to one another. It's in James. Always really struggled with that verse because I was like, why? Like, is it a prerequisite to, to forgiveness? Because I don't see that tying up with the rest of the Bible. Like, why does it make this point of confessing our sins to one another? And honestly, you can only speak to a theologian because I'm sure there's a huge number of dimensions to it. But one became really clear to me with this really powerful story that I want to share with you about my friend called Ben. Um, and it's basically, I want to talk to you about what does it mean to be like intimate, have intimate relationships with people where you kind of talk to them about everything inside of you. And so Ben, this guy called Ben, he was at uni and um, he was seeing God move in incredible ways. He was seeing people get saved in his like, small community, in his church. And he decided to start a thing that he called Fight Club. And it was like a men's purity group, you know, Fight Club. And um, if you've ever seen the film, it was because like, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. And the second rule of Fight Club is you also don't talk about Fight Club. So he started this thing called Fight Club. And it was basically just wanting to make sure that they stayed pure in the whole context of like, uni, where it's really hard to do that. It's not really hard to do that. It's just a challenge to do that. Um, but basically, he found that loads of people that were coming to this group were really struggling with guilt. And so he was like, okay, God, what should I do? And I don't think this is something that we should all do. Please don't take this as a blueprint for purity groups. But he said, you can come to Fight Club as long as you want. But if you want to become a fully-fledged member of Fight Club, you have to admit to the group the most shameful thing you've ever done which I know is intense, but his, in his community they had really good relationship going on and it was awesome. So that was working really well when people were saying things and, and all of that. But then this one guy came and he'd been coming for a few weeks and so Ben just said, okay, do you want to become a member? Like, would you like to, would you like to share with the group? And he was like, no, no, possibly, never could do that. Couldn't possibly do that. Ben was like, okay, okay. But then this started going on, and like the weeks rolled by into the months, and Ben started getting a little bit worried, like, Flip, what is this guy actually going to share? Because this guy was like so, so closed up about this thing that he'd done. And um, the weeks went by, and then finally this one week came, and this guy, let's just call him Jim, I actually don't know his name. Jim was like, okay, Ben, I'm ready to share. Tears rolling down his eyes, and Ben was like, are you sure? And Jim was like, yeah, I'm ready to share, I'm ready to share with the group. And so, through tears, he said, a few years ago, one of my good friends who was a girl, her dad died, and that week, she came to my house. And Ben was like, okay, where's this going? Jim was like, her dad died, she came to my house, and we had an argument, and I called her a bitch. Silence. Ben was like, please continue. He's like, no, no, that's it, that's my thing. That's the thing that had been causing him so much pain, so much shame. He was convinced that he was the worst guy in the world. 
Because what you see the devil tries to do is he calls, he is the father of lies. So what he tries to do, he tries to get something inside of us. He twists it and contorts it and he makes it the biggest thing in the whole world. And he keeps whispering things like, you're a disgrace. I remember at Bethel there was this one guy, really good friend of mine. And um, before he got saved, he, um, he'd been in a relationship with a girl. And he had considered, he thought that he treated her so badly that she could never get saved. And somehow he believed this lie that he was the biggest part in her salvation and because he treated her badly. And this guy had never seen him cry. He like, wept as he told me this. And I was like, dude, don't even worry about it. Like, Jesus is bigger than that. And you just saw this like burden lift off him and all this power that the devil had had over him just melt away. And so there's this part of accountability and don't do it with everyone, but find people in your life who you trust and who you love and take away the devil's power by saying, I let you see me. Because the truth is, is that what we do is we tend to expose 98% of ourselves to people and then we guard this 2% and we consider this 2% the worst thing ever. But the thing is, is that we can never feel love when we do that because we always believe that the 2% we hide is the thing that disqualifies us from love. So until you find someone who you say, this is me, intimacy, into me, you see, you can't experience love. So accountability, encouragement and accountability. And then the final one, and um, it does go in this order. Don't start with the third one before you nail the first one. But the third one is conflict. How do we do conflict? And um, I always toy with the idea of like whether or not you put conflict into this talk because conflict is such a misunderstood thing. But at the HTB Leadership Conference, I was there, not this year, last year, and a guy called Patrick Lencioni came up. And um, he was talking through, he's written this like, best-selling book. He works with like, some of the biggest companies in the world. And he's written this book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he goes through, and he's got this pyramid thing that you see. And um, it goes through, and on the bottom, basically, it's like without the pyramid builds on itself. So without the bottom layer, you can't have the next layer. Without that layer, you can't have the next, you know, you get it. Um, but the, and so the bottom layer is trust. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So for a f like a functional team, the first thing you need to have is trust. The second layer is fear of conflict, which basically means he's saying that without being able to have relationships that you can include the paradigm of doing conflict well, you'll never get beyond the first layer. That's challenging. And so that is something that if we want to do this community thing and we want to do it right, we need to work out how do we do conflict well. And um, so I spent some time thinking about conflict. And I think that conflict works in the paradigm of I'm not perfect and neither are you. And so for us to do this thing together, we're going to saturate our relationship with grace and we're going to realize that we make mistakes and we're going to work through this thing together. But, you know, so what I was saying about accountability, there is about, I'd say, six people in my life who I've asked to be in my life who, if they were to ask me anything, I'd tell them, like, undisclosed. Six people that I've done life and done relationship with. And two of them are in this church, Matt Davis and Mike Crown. Like, both of them have kind of full disclosure. They can ask me things at any point. And the same, like, they've said the same thing back to me. But if Mike Crown was to come up to me and say, Adam, will you hold me accountable to the greatness that I feel like is inside of me? And I say yes, but I'm not willing to challenge him on things that I think he's not doing right. What I'm saying is yes, so long as this doesn't put me out of my comfort zone. 
Because me not challenging you is me saying that I'm more important than you. Because I don't want to feel awkward and I don't want to have this difficult conversation. And so it is a challenging thing. Um, <laughs> Hannah is amazing. Um, but she challenged me on something quite recently and like I loved it, but it was hard. But apparently, and I didn't realize, but when I'm confused about something someone has said, I make this like face, like, which apparently, and she was like, it's really horribly unkind. And I was like, oh, it's not meant to be horribly unkind. It's meant to be like, but it's so good that she challenged me on that. She's like, Adam, you stop making that face when you don't understand. And I was like, and I was like, no, it wasn't really. <laughs> It was so, so good. Like, because I don't want to be the type of guy that when I don't understand what someone's saying, I pull a really unkind face that they don't understand. And it would have been so easy for Hannah to not have had that conversation with me. But I absolutely love the fact that she valued me more than she valued having, like, the difficulty of having a difficult conversation. Um, there is, and I'm going to end on this point. When fighter pilots um, get trained in the RAF, there's this thing that they get taught that apparently when you get to a certain altitude in your plane, and I don't know why, I don't know if it's because the air gets thin or the altitude gets really high or I don't know, whatever it is, but apparently as they get to this certain altitude which is really high, their brain gets convinced their plane has turned upside down and so loads of them will then just meander and just crash straight into the ground. So they get told, whatever you think reality is, you trust your dial. Whatever you think reality is, you trust your dial. Because your dial is going to confront your wrong perception of reality. We have got to make sure we have people in our lives who will confront our wrong perceptions of reality. Because otherwise it's... And we don't even know. We don't even see that it's happening. And so, um, there's... Have you got that slide? Visuals team. You're doing such a great job, visuals team. Um, so we do real. So like I said, I get the chance to uh, work for 24-7 prayer, and they're based in Allen House. And we put this like typography type thing. I think Pete got it. And um, I'm guessing it's where we got the whole title, We Do Real, from. Um, and what's cool is it's been there for a little while now, but when it first got put up and I got to be in the office, everyone who'd come into the office, I'd watch them stand in front of that sign, and you'd watch this like smile creep up in their mouth, and then you'd often see it turn up on Facebook. And it's because I think that as people look at this, what they have is they have this vision of community that works, and they want to be part of something that looks something like that, because they understand that we do live in an exhausted, loveless, lonely world. And so, as we begin this series, and we want to do life real, and all of those things, my challenge for us is, what if we would be willing to do the difficult things that are required to make community be everything it could be? Jesus had this great, incredible plan for his kingdom coming on the world, and it was called the church. And we want to do that really well. And so, I'm just going to pray together, and thank you uh, so much for listening. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for this house, and I do thank you for this family, Lord Jesus. And as we stand here on this new term, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us, give us a vision for what it looks like for community to work and to thrive really well. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are insisting very loudly that there are things that you are calling this house to do in Guildford and further afield, Lord Jesus. And we stand here, Lord, and we say that we don't want to be a bunch of lone rangers, but we want to go at it together. And would you teach us how to do that, Lord Jesus? And we thank you for your example, and we thank you for your grace. And we love you. Amen.